You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. Today, we're talking about approaching the resurrection of Jesus as a historian, and we're talking to professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological, Dale Allison. Yeah, and uh, Dale wrote a book about a year or so ago called The Resurrection of Jesus. Subtitle is Apologetics, Polemics, History. And it's really an amazing book, and that's really the basis for a lot of our discussion today. And I read this, and I was just so taken um, by his honesty, and also with, I I would say, not jumping to conclusions one way or the other about what he's finding, because he's also a person of faith, but he's also looking as a historian. And that, you know, Jared, the the other book he mentioned, I want to mention uh, here at the outset, Encountering Mystery, which is coming out sometime this summer. I read an early version of that, and it was like, it's a beautiful book talking about why he looks at the world the way that he does, and that affects how he looks at the Bible. And it's really quite fascinating stuff, but I thought it was a fantastic episode today. Well, I think it is representative of what we do at the Bible for all people, which I think for some is frustrating, but I've found it over the years to be of great comfort that there is a lot out there in terms of what the Bible is, what is the resurrection, what happened in the Exodus, what about Jonah, there's all these questions, and we end with Again, more maybe more questions than we have answers, but understanding that maybe that's also this the nature of reality. Yeah, and we better get comfortable and with of it, being folks. human, right? right? Yeah, that we just and are we really expected to know? You right. know, is is this all going to come down to one big theology exam one day? I don't think. But so. also, I think too the flip side of that is I appreciate folks like <sighs> Dale and I think you and I, where just because maybe we can't get to the black and white slam dunk answers doesn't mean that we're off the hook for learning and growing and doing the research that we can do. Quite the opposite. We, we, right. We're obligated to do that, but but not out of a sense of maybe freedom and expectation rather than fear. Fear, Yeah, exactly. which is, you know, we want to be driven by that. And I mean, to hear Dale talk about himself as a person, but also as a historian and living with that tension, that describes a lot of people I know, quite frankly, for, maybe for different reasons. But mm-hmm. I know I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to believe this. I think I do. But intellectually, I have these questions. Well, that's not uncommon. Yeah, that journey of integration of how right. do we how do we live with these different parts of ourselves that sometimes are in conflict with one another. Yeah, right. All right. Well, let's jump into it. I'm a Christian, but I'm also an historian, and I'm also a doubter, and I have questions. And somehow, over the years, I've been able to have these different parts of me be friendly with one another. I don't have to have certainty, and I don't even have to have one dominant personality. I think we are all always reading the text through our experiences, whatever those experiences may be. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. 
So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dale. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Dale, we are wondering today about the resurrection. That's a small topic, isn't it? That's not at all central to Christianity. But, you know, the resurrection is something that, you know, Christians have, I guess, in one form or another confessed for a very long time. And, you know, today it it's something that is usually said to be a, a very true historical event. But when historians look at this, it raises some complexities. And I thought we could just spend some time talking about some of those complexities that the reality of making historical claims like this. Well, can I ask it as this way of saying, why is it a complexity for historians? What makes it complex for historians? Well, there are at least two reasons that that are obvious. First of all, when you look at the New Testament accounts themselves, they, they don't seem to agree about things. So, Luke and John have the first resurrection appearances in Jerusalem. It looks like in Mark and Matthew, the first resurrection appearances are in Galilee. And there are all sorts of other details. These are famous or infamous. Uh, And then the the, the second thing, obviously, is that this is a a so-called miracle, and miracles haven't fared very well. Uh, among professional historians in the last three centuries or so. And uh, this is an outstanding aberration, if you will, if it happened. And, And by the way, I should add that historians, modern historians, don't just have doubts about miracles because they're prejudiced secular people. They have doubts about miracles because of a, of, of a history of, of learning that lots of, of stories people used to believe uh, just aren't believable anymore. There are, for example, I'll just stop here, but there are saints that used to be on the Roman Catholic calendar, and they took them off because the historians decided these people didn't exist or none of the stories about them are, are true. So, since the Renaissance, and especially in the Enlightenment, we have case after case of, of things people believed and that people no longer believe anymore or think we have good reason to doubt. So, th- there's a long history of here of, of story after story being doubted or story after story being undone, and that gives you a certain uh, frame of mind for approaching history, and there are many historians who just take it for granted that you certainly can't uh, invoke God or, or the miraculous when you're trying to figure out what happened in the past. So, so we have a certain kind of a historical consciousness now that might not have been shared by people many centuries ago, and that raises different kinds of questions. And I guess the tension that many people feel is, I mean, not to put this too simplistically, but there are Christians who have a faith in certain aspects of the New Testament, let's say miracles, that or the resurrection specifically, that, that, that are unquestioned, uh-huh. but they're living in the modern world where people are questioning these things all the time. And I think that creates a tremendous amount of tension for Christians to try to wade through this stuff. And, and I think maybe it, it suggests an aversion for historical investigation and what that can give you or not give you. I think it also brings a, um, an apologetics industry 
to to defend certain ways of thinking about uh, the resurrection. Yeah, that's true. I, I certainly have students who take classes with me, and then they never want to see me again, or sometimes they'll say, well, that's really interesting, but I just can't pursue it because I think I will, I will, I will lose my faith. I'm just not one of those people. I, I don't know how, how to think about this psychologically, but I, I'm a multiple personality of sorts, and so uh, I'm a Christian, but I'm also an historian, and I'm also a doubter, and I have questions. And somehow, over the years, I've been able to have these different parts of me uh, be friendly with one another. I don't have to have certainty, and I don't even have to have one dominant personality. Um, maybe that's hard to understand, but... Uh, if you want to say I'm a conflicted personality, that's true in that I hold different points of view, and I'm not uh, certain about many things, but that doesn't give me anxiety. I don't, I don't know what the psychological explanation for that is, but I think I've been capable of, of looking at important religious beliefs and asking the honest question, is that really true? Should I give that one up? Uh, I yeah yeah I'll just stop there. So when it comes to the resurrection what's the process that you've gone through as a historian you know what are the the main pieces of evidence if you will that that helped you wade through whether this is a historically accurate account not a historically accurate account what are the options what was that process like for you and what what did you do how how did you do that So I don't know uh, that I can describe that, because I really think that would cover the better part of uh, one, two, three, five decades. So when I was in college, I, I read a book by a famous theologian named Wolfhart Pannenberg, and this was a, a, his Christology, a book on who Jesus was, Jesus' identity, and he has a, a section in there in which he argues that the, the resurrection of Jesus is the or, or the, the hypothesis that Jesus rose from the dead is actually the best explanation for the data. And I remember very vividly reading this and standing up at some point and saying, what did this guy just do? I'm not convinced, but what did he do and what's wrong with what he did? And so I started reading books on this subject, and I've re- been reading books and articles on this ever since as a sort of appendix or epilogue to my doctoral dissertation. I had a few pages on, on resurrection, and then I ended up, uh, I think in 2005, publishing a book where I had a long, long essay on resurrection, about a 200-page essay, and then this book that that just came out is much longer than, than that. So, I've just been thinking about this for, for decades and decades. I can tell you, if, if, if this is what you're looking for, I can tell you uh, some of my uh, conclusions at this point. Absolutely, uh, yeah. As, as an historian, I do think that at the end of the day, the arguments in favor of, of an empty tomb are better than those against it, but this is not a... Um, a conclusion that I hold with 100% assurance. There are arguments to be made for and against. I'm also very sure that some of Jesus's followers, and my bet would be the first one was Mary Magdalene and the second was Peter, there were people who believed that they saw Jesus after he was dead, after he had been crucified. And I also think that 
they were operating with the expectation of resurrection before the crucifixion. So, at least that's how the Gospels present things. That is, they actually have Jesus predicting his, his resurrection ahead of time. Now, as an historian, there are lots of things I can say about uh, those passion predictions, but I do think the basic point is that Jesus expected to suffer and die, and then he looked forward to vindication, which in his time and place took the form uh, of resurrection. So, the category is already there. So, I think once the tomb is empty, and then once people have these uh, experiences of, of seeing him, however you explain them, it's natural because of their expectations to say, oh, he's risen from the dead, or the resurrection of the dead has begun. You need to remember that Luke himself, I mean, one of the Gospels just makes it clear. In Luke 19, it says that the disciples, when they went up to Jerusalem, were expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately. And one of the things that they must have expected, given uh, who they were, was the resurrection of the dead. So, it's a, it's a category that's there for them to draw upon and use once they have an empty tomb and these experiences. Of course, as an historian, uh, it's not clear how much that that gives you because there are multiple explanations for an empty tomb, and actually tomb robbing was not uncommon in antiquity, as odd as that may seem to us. And then the whole question of what exactly people were seeing and how would you explain these testimonies it's very, very difficult once you look into the literature, let's say, on, on visions and collective visions. It's all very confusing and very uh, hard to know what to do with. So, the, the, the conclusions I just shared with you, which, which put the, the origin of this belief down to, to three things, to the discovery of the empty tomb, to these uh, visions or encounters with Jesus, and pre-Easter expectations, those three things don't add up to the Christian conclusion because you can give, if you want to, a skeptical or um, uh, yeah, a, a non-Christian interpretation of, of of that data. Uh, so, on the one hand, uh, my conclusions are conservative as an historian because I think the tomb was probably empty, and I actually think the belief in Jesus' resurrection goes back to the first week af- after the crucifixion, and, and those are conclusions that apologists or conservative Christians uh, are, are happy with. But the apologists don't agree with me when it comes to my, I think it's just recognition that those facts themselves don't prove that God raised Jesus from the dead. There, there are multiple uh, options here for what I would say are reasonable people. Right, right. Many years ago, you, you may be familiar with a book by an apologist, Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh-huh. I think what you're saying is, well, there's evidence, but... It doesn't demand a single verdict. It, it, there, there are multiple models or paradigms we can use to explain these things. Again, I want to stress from the point of view of, let's say, the modern historian. Right? Would you say that's a fair way of putting it? Yeah, that's a fair way of putting it. I would also say that if a modern historian looks at the, the data, the data is a lot, let's say, thinner than a, a lot of uh, apologists make out. So, we, we do have this 
reference in 1 Corinthians 15 to Jesus appearing to 500 people. Now, there's nothing apparently about this in, in the Gospels. I think the, the reason for that is that whatever this experience was, it probably took place after Pentecost, so that's why it's not uh, in the Gospels because they don't, they don't cover or go into the later period. But every question you want to ask about this appearance to 500, just, uh, you, you just can't answer it. So, you don't know who these people were. You don't know who gathered them together or for what purpose. You don't know how they saw Jesus. Did they see him in the clouds like Constantine and his army, you know, saw the the, the sign to conquer in the sky, or, you know, what else is going on? Is there a receiving line? Who counts the people? I mean, it's just every single question you want to ask, you can't answer. All you have is this bare statement by Paul that, you, you know, th- that this happened, that's it. And for an historian, that's nothing but uh, frustrating. And if you, if you are familiar with religious history, you know that Roman Catholics, for example, will frequently refer to sightings, collective sightings of Mary, or to experiences that multiple people ha- have witnessed, and it just doesn't prove anything. If somebody says, well, you know, there were a hundred Roman Catholics in Venezuela 25 years ago who saw Mary and that's the end of the sentence, you don't say, okay, I'm convinced. You just say, okay, do, can, I, can I learn anything more than that? So, Paul's statement there, I think, is a, is a dead end. It's a dead end for apologists, but it's a dead end for, for everybody. And much in the Gospels, when you, when you think about it historically, is very thin. And, and I think that's a good word, because I think what, what I from what I know of historical processes in terms of understanding what happened, there's also this idea of having corroboration so that you're, the evidence is strengthened when you have other sources saying similar things. And thinking about putting the pieces of history together as more of a process that is on the spectrum of we're more and more confident of it and we're less and less confident of it rather than it definitely happened or it definitely didn't happen. I think the whole framework of doing history is unsettling for maybe some more conservative Christians who want it to be black and white or it did or it didn't and here's the slam dunk like the evidence that demands a verdict I would say would you say the historical process itself rarely comes up with evidence that demands a verdict but it's again this process of building evidence over time and corroboration and the New Testament there's not a lot of outside corroboration for some of these things oh that's absolutely true and and I would just add that the farther back in history you go the harder things are so we have a lot more materials to work with let's say for Winston Churchill or World War two than we have for absolutely anything in the first century did you know fast growing trees is the biggest online nursery in the US with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants? and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. 
we got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And fast growing trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. And so one of the problems is that these sources come from a long time ago and they're just look look mark has eight verses on the the resurrection that's it and matthew has has 20 and if if you add uh, luke you've got another chapter and john has uh, chapters 20 and 21 and then paul has uh, you know this little creed it's very short in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and those are our primary sources of data. And when you add them up, they're really not uh, much of any. I could put them all, I could photocopy those chapters and put them all on my desk, and and I could have all the data right there compared to <laughs> compared to, to modern sources. That's just, it's just nothing. And, you know, things happen in modern times which are not susceptible to proof or, or, or disproof. I was alive when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated, and once in a while I'll read a book on uh, the Kennedy assassination and I'll wonder whether the Warren Commission got it right. Maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't look to me like a slam dunk that they got it right. But the, but the point is, the data for that is unbelievable. We have all sorts of investigations and eyewitnesses and reports from the scene and so on and so on and so on. And even in a case like that, uh, people disagree. So, com- compared to, to that mountain of, of material that people are still wading through and unearthing and so on, we, we just have very little to go on. So... Again, I, I prefer the word frustrating. I'm often just frustrated, um, if I'm honest. But let me add, though, as a sort of footnote here, that 
I, I think we make progress even among my friends, uh, the apologists. So, a couple of, of uh, people recently have, have forwarded what they call a minimal facts approach to the resurrection. And, and what they're sort of confessing is we can't just take the sources at face value. So, let's start with two or three facts that everybody agrees on, and then we'll see what the interpretation is. And I think that's a better way to go about this than people have in the past. Now, I'm still not on board. I think that there are, I, I don't see anything here that demands a verdict or that would compel, let's say, an atheist uh, to change his or her mind. But it is a recognition that um, the sources are really, are really thin. And we're, we're going to have to draw, an inferences from, draw our inferences from uh, very little data. Yeah, I mean, um, something came to mind just now, and uh, I want to ask you something, and I don't want our listeners to misunderstand my motivation. I'm not trying to slam certain arguments. I just want to ask you, again, as a historian, how you would process this. But a common defense that I've heard of the resurrection, which I have to say is is not utterly uncompelling to me, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, but it's the... Um, the impact that the Easter faith had on the communities and how that started a rather significant movement in world history. So, from a histor again, I'm asking you as a historian, from a historical point of view, how do you process that? I know Tom Wright, for example, is very, that's 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 a large element of his uh, talking about the historicity of the resurrection. But how, how do you process that? Well, I, so here I think you have to look at the, the, the sociologists, and the sociologists are able to look at, at different religious movements and to show us how they sometimes overcome or survive failure and, and even prosper. So, you, you know that Seventh-day Adventism actually begins with a couple of, of failed prophecies, and many people were disillusioned and left the movement, but many of them found the, the strength or the resolve to carry on. And we see the same thing today with some uh, Hasidic Jews whose leader they thought was the Messiah and who departed, who died in the the 1990s, and they were totally devastated by this because they expected him uh, to rule and set up the kingdom, but their movement is thriving as much as ever, and people report experiencing his presence, and some people report seeing him, and uh, they carry his throne in, into the synagogue still, so he's an invisible presence for them. Anyway, the point is that as dismaying as I find this, I mean, I'm, I'm not thrilled by this, but if I'm just being honest as an historian, it really is the case that human beings in some contexts can find the resources to, to rally and, and, uh, and to continue. It is just not the case that disillusionment always is the end of a movement. Yeah, it seems well, like... If it depends on what you want to get out of that, that that fact that there was a strong resurrection. Let's call it a fact. There was a strong resurrection faith on the part of the early followers of Jesus. We have early documentation of that. Much of the New Testament, 
there's a lot of a, a declaration and assumptions of Jesus being raised from the dead. Um, but there are multiple understandings of how to account for those, let's say, biblical data. <laughs> yeah. So, look, I, 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 I'm going to get in trouble here, but so, so I am a Christian and I'm somebody who professes faith in Jesus' resurrection. But I'm also somebody who doesn't think that he can prove this to the satisfaction of all reasonable people. So, if, if you're talking about the disciples rallying and, you know, being dismayed that their, their leader was died and how do we get this lively movement, again, I think an atheist could just say, well, they were eschatologically excited. They were expectant. Luke 19 is absolutely right. They thought that the the last things were were starting or that they were at hand, among which would be at the resurrection, and then they found uh, the tomb empty, and then Mary, uh, and then afterwards Peter said, yeah, I, I, I've seen Jesus, and then the, the enthusiasm began. You know, I guess we like to think that good fruit comes from good trees or, or good roots, but, you know, it's just not always the case. So, I, I know some Mormons that are lovely people and, and bright and so on, I, but I don't buy their, their story. Uh, I don't buy the Mormon story. I'm a skeptic, and uh, I don't believe in the golden tablets. And all sorts of things follow if you don't believe in the golden tablets. But the fact that Mormonism did not begin <laughs> with what I take to be real miracles doesn't mean that it hasn't become a world movement, that uh, it hasn't produced lots of wonderful people, and that it hasn't produced lots of good things for people. So, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical, again, as an historian of, of, of that sort of, so, sort of argument. It reminds me a bit of the argument that you occasionally run into that, you know, Christianity began with this tiny little movement, and now it's a world religion, and isn't the proof of that that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, you know, Islam is also uh, a, a world religion. It's spread all over the globe. It seems to be doing pretty well right now. Do you need God to to explain that? So, you know, I this again, everything is complicated, right? And for every argument you want to make, there's an argument on the other side. That's just the way the the world is. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, can I ask you, I mean, this is piggybacking on something you said um, just a, a few seconds ago. How, and I'm asking this, I'm going to qualify this a little bit. I'm asking this because I know there are people listening who are in a similar place as you are, and they say, you know, I've got my left brain is turned on, and I think these things, and my, you know, right brain is turned on, and... I'm much more comfortable with intuition and belief and things like that. But how how do you bring together, in some sense, um, your you know your your Christian faith and your historical analysis? Because that's something that many many people, frankly, have to live with. You know, and and I don't, I don't think there's one answer to that question, but I'm just sort of asking, you know, help help our listeners th- um, think out loud by bringing these two worlds into some sort of, you know, detente or something, you know, just where they can sort of live or coexist together. Oh, okay, so so here's the problem: the resurrection may be 
sort of the center of Christian theology, but that doesn't mean it's the epistemological foundation in the sense that that's the one thing that you can prove or should be able to prove, or uh, and then everything follows from that. You can have important beliefs that aren't epistemological foundations. So, for me, the data, and I argue this clearly in the book, I say the data can be interpreted in multiple ways. So, what you end up doing, everybody just does this, it's just a fact, you interpret the data according to your worldview. And I have a worldview which includes a God with a Christian character. I have a worldview that allows for miracles and really weird and strange things. I actually have a worldview which allows for (laughs) unexpected things at, at every turn. So, that's a way of saying that we resolve the data or we interpret the data in the text, especially since it's thin data, by what we otherwise believe. Now, once we come to the conclusion or, or think that we can reasonably hold or think because of our worldview that Jesus rose from the dead, then that can become a, a central theological idea from which to work. But I, I don't think you start with a sort of blank slate mm-hmm. and say, okay, I have to prove the resurrection of Jesus or my Christianity can't get off the ground. For me, faith has other sources other origins, and history, you know, historical conclusions just aren't the the way most people get into the, the church door, and they're not the way most people end up, you know, coming to terms with Jesus. Mm-hmm. My sense, actually, is that it's primarily Christians who have doubts because they're modern people who who want to prove the resurrection to themselves. But they've come to believe in it on other grounds beforehand, right? Mm-hmm. But it's this modern sense that if we can't prove it, you know, historically, then, then we can't believe it at all. But I, I don't think that way. Again, I, I think that you can have a worldview and you can defend it on rational grounds, and then you can use that worldview to interpret certain things that are not perfectly perfectly clear. Uh, and by the way, I should say, the resurrection, it is amazing. That is, as an historian, I don't know exactly what analogy is to this. I mean, you do have, you have an empty tomb, and I think you do, and you have people reporting seeing this this fellow after he's dead, and you have multiple people doing this, and you have a couple of occasions on which it appears uh, more than one person thought they encountered this, this individual, and you have at least one, maybe two, we don't know about James, but, you know, at least one person who's an outsider who gets converted by an encounter or vision. Uh, that's a really fascinating series of events. Mm-hmm. And it has no obvious reductionistic explanation. You can come up with one, but it is an amazing series of events. And so, I think it's consistent with with a Christian worldview. But I, again, I don't see how, you know, the New Testament data or the New Testament explained by an historian is going to convert people who are trying just to think through things uh rationally. I just, right. I, yeah. I haven't I I'm not convinced, so maybe I'm just reading myself into other people, but the apologists don't convince me. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you, what you said before about worldviews, you know, sort of what we bring into this discussion, 
I know from reading of you elsewhere, uh, books of yours, that you're you're very clearly not a scientific materialist. <laughs> so, um, could you just riff on that a little bit? Explain what that means and how that might give you, let's say, more flexibility in looking at things like resurrection than um, than other people who might be more of a scientific materialistic bent. Okay, well, that that actually uh, leads to the next book I I wrote, which will be out. I guess this this summer, which in part is is a sort of attempt to share why I have the worldview that I have. But yeah, I I am not a reductionistic materialist. I'm not a fan of what William James called called medical materialism. I don't think everything in the world can be reduced to uh, chemicals and electricity as we currently understand them. So there's actually I'm not going to do it here, but there's a, a section in the book where I recall a, a totally outrageous experience that happened to me. Now, of course, I was the sole witness, so nobody else uh, should believe this, but I, I witnessed this event, and... Well, don't you want to tell us what it is? Oh, no, no, no. It's it's too long a story, okay, but the okay. gist of it is is that I, I think an object dematerialized in one side of the room and then showed up on the other side of the mm-hmm. room. So, okay. I actually believe this. I have no explanation for it. I don't think it was God. I don't have any explanation for this at all, but I also have had visions myself. I've had mystical experiences myself. I've had a couple of encounters, apparent, ostensible encounters with dead people. I personally don't think they were simply projections. I think they were projections in response to incoming data. Um, anyway, the point is is that as I look at the world, you can't stuff everything into the reductionistic box, and you can't stuff everything into current scientific uh, explanations. In fact, I think that the world is, if we could get rid of the social censorship that we have, I think people are constantly running into things that are uh, inexplicable and actually running into some sort of religious or invisible or spiritual realm. So, this is part of my, um, a very, very important part of my worldview. So, when I turn to the New Testament, a lot of the things for me are actually ho-hum that make other people think, wow, could that have possibly ever happened? So, uh, I, let me let, let me just say say one more thing, and I, I'm happy to do this whether people think I'm nuts or not. Uh, but we need to be honest about our own experiences and what we think uh, really happens. So I think on two occasions, only two, but I think on two occasions, I saw things uh, happen before they happened. In one case, a day before it happened; in the other case, two weeks before it happened. I, honest to God, think this. Actually, I'd say I know it, and so. If that occasionally happens, it, it, it doesn't boggle my mind that Jesus at points in the Gospels might say something uh, about what's going to happen in the future, mm-hmm. and it comes to pass. That doesn't mean that that you know his prophecies are all historical, or he said them all uh, just as they stand and so on, but it does mean that when I look at them, uh, I, my mind isn't boggled. I don't say from the start, well, that's ridiculous, that could never happen, so they all must be predictions after the fact. I just don't start from that place. 
And I, I don't start from that place with the resurrection. So, my own experiences and those of people I know and my study of visions makes me think that some visions have veridical elements. That is, I don't think all visions are simply uh, subjective projections. And if you start with that, say, if you also think that when people are dead, they're not dead, then you just come to the the, the text with uh, a different point of view, a different starting place, uh, a different presupposition. There are people who come to the text and they know that the dead are dead, and they know that all visions are hallucination and hallucinations, and that's that guides what they do. I start in a different place, and it guides uh, what I do, even though I'm framing all my arguments in such a way that they can be understood by everybody, no matter what point of view, but there are going to be people who can't follow me here or there because I simply have a a different worldview. I I think that's an important thing to talk about, which is how our personal experiences shape that. And because it's interesting to me, I'm kind of doing the logic here of, I grew up in a Christian tradition that said we can't trust our own experiences. We have to just trust the Bible and what it says or, or whatever. There's this, this sense of objectivity where my personal experiences actually don't matter in the truth of things. And usually that's said in such a way that, well, we need to believe in the miracles of the Bible, even if your personal experiences wouldn't affirm that. And how your story kind of flips that on its head a little bit to say, well, I believe these things because of my personal experiences and you're giving weight to that. And I just think that's important to understand that in this mix of things, and you talk about different personalities or different persona or frameworks that you utilize throughout your life when interpreting data, that one of those is your own personal, maybe in many cases like deeply personal experiences and how that can be valid. And I think that flies in the face of a lot of of modern thinking. Do you run into people where, like, how do you talk to people in such a way that, can you, I guess my question is, can you convince people that their personal experiences are valid and that they can be trusted? And how do you, how do you do that? Uh, well, th- that, that's, a, that's a huge topic, and I don't think I can address that directly. Let me just say a couple of things. One is that I don't believe in the dichotomy between Bible and and experience. That is, I think we are all always reading the text through our experiences, whatever those experiences may be, just as we are always reading the text through a tradition, whether we're aware of it or not. Actually, if you go back to the old uh, so-called Methodist quadrilateral, how do you get your theology? How do you come to your conclusions? Well, uh, the Bible, reason, tradition, and experience, and this is uh, a a sort of um, prescriptive way of going about things. I think that's, that's, that's wrong because I think this is just descriptive. I think we are always, whether we are conscious of it or not, reading Scripture through experience and tradition and reason. There actually is no other possibility here. This is actually, I guess you'd say, a theological current right now. People talk about how, talk talk about, let's say, African readings of the Bible or Asian readings of the Bible and so on. And it's a, it's a recognition that people from different places see things differently. That seems to me to be inescapable. Um but the the other thing I wanted to say was that usually when people discourage you from paying attention to experience, they'll say, well, that's that's subjective or it just lands you, you know, in a in a mess. And then every person 
is their own authority. But, you know, Protestantism uh, had the priesthood of all believers, but it also has the priesthood of all readers. And if you look at it, the, the history of Protestantism is just a, a history of splits, of theological splits and divisions and, and denominations, splintering. I, I'm a Presbyterian. I can't tell you how many Presbyterian churches are here in, in North America. Dozens and, and, and dozens. And the point is, they're all reading the same Bible, but that doesn't guarantee they come to the same conclusion. So, the, the notion that somehow the Bible is objective and leads to objective results uh, just isn't the case. Arius and Athanasius had the same Bible. They came to very different conclusions. So, you, you know, if, if you're arguing that we'll all come to agreement if we uh, just read the Bible and ignore experience, I don't. I don't think that's that's true. By the way, oh, it occurs to me one more thing I should add here is that the people who usually are saying don't pay attention to the experience uh, to your experiences, just pay attention to the Bible, they are usually the channels of the Bible and the interpreters uh, of the Bible. So functionally, this is a way of saying don't pay pay attention to your experience, pay attention uh, to me. (laughs) Right, to my experience, yeah, Yeah, right, exactly. Well, to my authority. Yeah. it, it, it's it's a way of promoting themselves if if you want to be cynical. Pay attention Sorry. to my subjectivity, not your own. <laughs> well, pay attention to my sermons and my theology, which is su- yeah. which is your subjectivity, right? I mean, they they'll never say that. <laughs> they'll never say it's their subject. They'll just say this is this is absolute truth. But you know, it's it like you're saying it's it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah. So who we so who we are matters. Our experiences matter, and. And that includes being modern people, thinking of history in certain ways. And we do the best that we can, but just don't be a reductionist materialist and you'll be fine. <laughs> yes, well, no, 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 no. I'm just kidding, the, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, okay, I was going to say, it, it just makes things harder. So, somebody like me who has a truly open mind and thinks uh, inexplicable things happen, I, I also know that, that people lie. And I know people deceive themselves, and I know people believe in myths, and I know that people misinterpret, and I know that lots of stories are bogus. So, it doesn't make anything, you know, easier. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, um, and through that, too, I think what I'm hearing again is that the data, whether we're talking about the data that we get in our personal experiences, the biblical data, I think it's frustratingly inconclusive. And I think when we talk to people often about the Bible or any of this, it's that we want there to be black and white answers. And almost nothing, as I get older, I'm learning, can be slam dunks. It is always, well, here is the data, here's the facts. Even if you're a PhD in history in this one specialty and area, like you said with the JFK assassination, is we can have mountains of data and yet still be a little gray, maybe more, maybe less on certain things, but there can still be room for having to make that leap of faith or or make some conclusion, draw some conclusion out of the evidence. And I think that can be frustrating for a lot of people. I know I'm still frustrated with it, and I've had many years of trying to live with it. I'm fine with it. I've given up. (laughs) Well, so, the the point is, I think that life is difficult for everybody. Uh, At least everybody I've ever met, life is difficult. And we'd like to think that there's some area where 
things are clear and and it's not difficult. But I've come to the conclusion that the Bible is part of life. It was produced by human beings. And so as helpful as it can be in many ways uh, and as inspiring and so on, it, it is also difficult and it raises questions and things are not they're, they're just not clear. It's like the rest of, of, of life. You have to work and struggle. I, I live literally across the street from one of the great theological libraries, and it is full of people writing about the Bible. And, you know, if a, I don't know, a Martian were to land and read a hundred of these books, I think the Martian's first conclusion would be they're all writing about the Bible, but they're all saying different things about it. Mm-hmm. It's just obvious the that's we have a commentary tradition and if you you are familiar with it it has multiple voices it has conflicting voices yeah right. it's just the way it is yeah well i mean that's I, I actually i think that's a great note to end on because it's very realistic and i think it can relieve people of the pressure of having to sort of nail it all down in an apologetic sort of way so we want to thank you dale for taking the time to be with us today and um we're also very excited about your next book that's coming out pretty shortly i read it already and i think it's fantastic everybody should buy it but for now we're talking about resurrection and you should buy that book too don't read it it's too hard it's too long and it's got a lot of little font but buy it (laughs) Is that good? Can I say that? I always tell people, I don't care if you read my book, just buy it. No, I want people to think about it. Till has integrity. That's because your books are good. That's the main reason. So anyway, but thank you for your time, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Well, that's it for this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before you go, we want to give a huge shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. So a big thanks to Bruce Sims, Jane Smith, James Christofferson, M.M. Branch, Brandon Stutheit, Height Baker, Sam and Nicole Galambos, Travis Mallett, Terrence L. Speak, and Brett Davidson. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can leave us a review or just tell others about our show. You can also head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People, where for as little as $3 a month, You can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing director Savannah Locke, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. 